This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse, we talk with an abuse survivor named Ashley. And Ashley was raised by a narcissistic mother who neglected her well-being as a child so she could live a carefree life. It's a story of parentification and the realization of how dysfunctional your childhood really was when you become an adult. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, a podcast that gives a voice to survivors of narcissistic abuse. I am Brandon Chadwick, but my friends call me Chad, and thanks for tuning into this episode. So what is a narcissist, you may ask? Well, for the purposes of this podcast, we refer to a narcissist as anyone who has displayed a pattern of behavior that shows a limited capacity to appreciate others' perspectives. It is that simple. And now, before we get to our episode with Ashley, I just wanted to thank everyone in the Narcissist Apocalypse community for listening to the show and sharing your thoughts by email, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Also, a reminder, if you have not left us a review on whatever podcast service you use, Spotify, Apple, Google, Stitcher, CastBox, etc., etc., please leave us a five-star written review as it helps out the show a lot when it comes to rankings. Now, if you haven't been to our website recently, please do go there if you want to be part of our show and be a guest on this show. Go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com and fill out the guest form and we will go from there. But the quickest way to be part of the show is to also go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com and to read a letter to your narcissist and to be part of our Letters to Our Narcissist compilation episode number three. We have a voicemail recorder on our website to record. Go to NarcissistApocalypse.com. It's on the right side of the page and it's always floating around. It's hard to miss. There's a button there that says send voicemail. Press it and away you'll go. We are accumulating these letters to have a volume three of that episode. So send in those voicemails. And if you want me or my old pal Melissa to read your letter instead, just send it to NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com. Other new things that are going on, we are now offering high-conflict parenting courses that can be found at NarcissistApocalypse.com slash courses. Yes, we now have partnered with an online parenting company, and many of the courses we are offering were created by Bill Eddy. And if you have listened to our episode last year with a divorce lawyer named Helen, you'll know that Bill Eddy is an expert in dealing with these high-conflict individuals in court, and he's now helped create many parenting courses to help you through divorce and to help support your children too. These courses are the most widely recognized courses by family courts across the country. So if you want to support the show and are looking for guidance, please do go to NarcissistApocalypse.com slash courses. 
And a couple more things, a few more things maybe. Uh, we have a new podcast, Narcissist Apocalypse Q&A. It's now available for your listening pleasure. Our first, episode, first 10 episodes have been released. We're recording a new episode tomorrow, and I will be getting hypnotized for this episode by Colleen Marie. I'm nervous and excited at the same time. So this, this episode should be interesting. And if you are looking for a therapist or a coach like the ones on our Q&A podcast, please do go to abusetherapy.org. And abusetherapy.org, you can find... Uh, therapists and coaches who specialize in narcissistic abuse. And if we do not have someone in your area, please let us know and we will help find someone for you using abusetherapy.org. It helps support the show. But do you know what else helps support the show? Our Patreon. Yes, we have started a Patreon. If you want to hear episodes that never made it to air, follow up episodes with former guests, and much, much more, join our Patreon. We'll be releasing new content on there every week. So to help support the show, become a patron of our Patreon at patreon.com slash Narcissist Apocalypse. And last thing. We've started an Instagram channel, not just a YouTube channel anymore, an Instagram channel. And we started making fun pop culture narcissist-based videos on there as well. And yesterday we released a new one about the power of storytelling. And I discussed the healing process using the formula that we use on this show when guests come on. So if you want to help yourself feel less shame, I teach you how we go through that formula. So check out that video on Instagram under Narcissist Apocalypse. And now, it's time for me to get out of my own way and your way. Here is my conversation with Ashley. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse. And with me today, we have Ashley. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you today? I am good, and today you're going to share a story of your narcissistic parent, your mother, and it's the first one of these stories that we've had in a while, so thank you for coming on the show and sharing your story with me and everyone today, and I'm just going to get out of my way and your way, and thank you. The floor is now yours. Thank you. Um, Interestingly enough, today is my mother's birthday. Oh, I didn't um, know that. Yeah. <laughs> Coincidentally, today is her birthday. Um, so this will be the second, no, second or third birthday that I have been no contact with her for the most part. Um, yeah. So interesting day. Uh, um, well, it's, uh, have you, I guess before we even get into that, are you, is this day trouble for you mentally? A little bit, yes, because I think um, the last thing I've really heard from her was I got a pretty big letter from her, several page letter and a package around, it was right after Christmas, I think it was in the first year that I was no contact. Um, it's kind of telling me how horrible I was for not contacting her on her birthday and Mother's Day. <laughs> um, so it feels a little harsh. And also in that letter, she had sent me um, all of my childhood photos, that she, all the childhood photos that she had of me, every birthday card, any Christmas card, anything I'd ever given to her, and all of my pictures were all in this package, just and telling how horrible I was. So it's a little bit of a triggering day for me today. And... 
I guess doing this show hopefully will be hopefully a little bit of a cathartic experience uh, for you on this day and um, give you some comfort. Thank you. I think, I think it will. I think, and I've had some friends that have encouraged me to, to really get the story out there and I've never put it out in this much of a bundle bundled up kind of way. So, and I, just really wanted to put it out there too for other people that have narcissistic parents and other people that feel like they can't speak out and feel like they can't go no contact but want to and um, hopefully be as encouraging as other people have been to me. Well, thank you for uh, coming to share your story with everyone because it's been a while for this type of story. Um, And to do it on such a vulnerable vulnerable day, um, (laughs) you know, so thank thank you, and I know this must be difficult, yeah. but um, I'll I'll be here if you need me. I just might be silent. Right, I, I just it. might be silent for a while. Okay, okay. Um, and I think maybe starting out, I'll, I'll start out kind of where I first realized something was off in my family. Um, I think I grew up pretty normal. I guess seemingly normal. I guess everyone thinks their childhood is normal at first. Um, I'm the middle child. I'm the only daughter. Um, I have a younger brother and an older brother. Older brother is a half brother. He did not live with us. He came about every weekend or so, and I never really knew why until much later. Um, younger brother and myself are two years apart. Lived in the house. My parents stayed together till I was about thirteen. Um, and I think that the first time I really noticed something wasn't right was when I was in elementary school. I was around, um, maybe seven years old and I went to a very small country school, very tiny school. And then all of a sudden, all of my friends, you know, which I only have two or three, it was such a small school. People just stopped speaking to me and treating me differently things weren't quite right for a couple of years. Um, it was really hard for me. I was doing poorly in school, feeling like an outsider. Um, when I was nine years old on my ninth birthday, I was really excited. I was going to turn double digits, going to have this big 10 year old kid birthday party. Um, I wanted to make it a big deal. I wanted to invite all my friends from school that I still thought liked me, but didn't really talk to me much. And I remember getting a box of birthday invitations and sitting at the table with this box of invitations and my mom telling, you know, making my list of all the kids we were going to send the invitations to. And there was one particular friend that had been my absolute best friend that didn't talk to me anymore. And my mom said, I just don't think you should send her an invitation. She's not going to come. And I just remember bursting into tears and saying, I don't understand. Why don't my friends like me anymore? What's going on? And I ran in the other room dramatically like a nine-year-old. And I remember my mom coming in and sitting down with me and saying, well, I think it's time. I guess it's probably time. You're old enough. You need to know the truth. And she then told me about how when my best friend's mother had been in the hospital, uh, my mom started an affair with my best friend's father. And these things happen. I understand that. But I don't, looking back on it now, I don't think it's appropriate to tell your nine-year-old daughter how horrible her dad has been and why you felt justified in cheating with her best friend's father. (laughs) So that was kind of a big blow up in my life. Um, 
I remembered back a couple years ago when this had supposedly taken place that seeing my parents having a lot of fighting, putting, being able to put that all together. Um, so it just really, really stands out to me now is that whole, you're old enough to understand this. You're so mature. You, you'll get it. And thinking that's an okay thing to tell a nine-year-old. And that kind of became a theme with things of her using this. You're so mature. You just, you already, you can handle it. You've got it. You've got it. Um, to allow me to do very inappropriate things for my age. And those inappropriate things that I was doing, I think, allowed me to be out of the house to let her not have to parent, in a way. That's kind of how I put it together now. I think my mom wasn't a person that tried to control me or control my um, actions and make my identity for me. She was very competitive of me, though. Um, if, like, if I took dance classes, she had to take dance classes, and she had to take more of them and do it better. Um, and not be bothered though if I was performing or anything. It was all about her. Um, and then so later on, I think when I was about 13, when my parents, you know, and there were other things along the years, but that was probably a big one. And then when I was about 13, um, my parents were still very rocky. The house was awkward. Nobody really talked. Nobody really hung out much. We would have vacations and things, but it was still, there was just a, they just lived in that same house, I think. Um, my mom ended up going back to school. She got a job. She started going out on the weekends with her friends from work a lot. My dad would stay home with us. My dad didn't say much. He was pretty grumpy, I think, because of their rocky relationship. I was withdrawing because I was 13. I was starting, I think, to get a little bit rebellious, and I had no structure from my parents, really. Um, I'm riding the bus home from school one day, and I would think I was a... It was either eighth or ninth grade, so it was either the last year of middle school or the first year of high school. Pretty sure it was the last year of middle school. A senior high school guy on the bus looped in. I think he saw I was an easy target, looped in, and became my boyfriend for two years. So I would have been 13, and he was 18. Um, super inappropriate relationship. Um, and around the same time, my parents got divorced. And they were splitting up. My mom had done a good job of several years of grooming me, I think, because my dad was a pretty grumpy. Um, he could get, he had a lot of anger. Now I can see why, because he lived with her. But she used his anger to groom me to hate him. Um, so over the years, I had kind of developed this, you know, he's so mean, he has rules. My mom was always you know, you're so much grown up, you don't need rules, you can take care of yourself, you're fine, you're different than other kids, you're okay. It's fine for you to have this relationship with an older guy. It's okay. Um, so around that time, they split up, so I went to live with her. She and I lived in an apartment. My younger brother stayed with my father. Um, I still had, it was sort of at the beginning of this relationship, and over time, this guy who was legally an adult um, over those couple of years, really just, it gradually happened that he, you know, was very jealous, very verbally abusive. Um, you know, look, your parents aren't around. Nobody loves you but me. Nobody's going to love you but me. I'm 13. I just want someone to love me. He, you know, gets more and more physically, emotionally, and then sexually abusive. And my mother encouraged this relationship. Um, she was, 
only home maybe about half the week. She would go and stay at her new boyfriend's house. Um, and I, as a 13, 14 year old kid kind of fell apart. Um, CPS got called to my school at one point to question me about this relationship. Um, because I guess someone, a teacher had heard me talking to friends. Um, but I thought it was all normal. I thought I was a grown up kid and I could handle it. And he was right. And I was wrong. And, um, when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And over those couple of years, uh, you know, it just got so bad. I remember being, I would have been freshman, sophomore in high school, and it was, you know, then he would tell me down to what I was allowed to wear to school, how I had to pull my hair back, how I had to not talk to anyone else. Um, it was pretty bad. Um, I don't know how deep I should get into that, <laughs> how bad that was. Um were you going to say something? Um, well, I, before you got to that part, I was just going to say that you know part of your mom's grooming process was mm-hmm. before that even happened. You know, when you were nine years old, just by telling you how mature you are, yeah. as a way to create this—is uh, it a defense mechanism of some sort? Of like when someone questions you, you're like, "Oh, I can handle this. I'm mature." You know, these these adult things are now going on in my life that I should not be um, in, like in this specific relationship. I can handle this even though I'm 13 years old. I'm mature. Those are seeds that have been sown in you early on. As oh, if, I believed it. Yeah. As if your mom knew that she wanted a... Uh, a freer life of any responsibility, it sounds, at this point, uh-huh. and has put those sure. thoughts in your mind so you don't mind being alone, but you don't, yeah. but yeah, but you don't understand fully at all what that means because internally you are lonely. I'm a child. Yes, yes. I'm a child. Um, and that, I think that was really, um, she, we always had this buddy relationship. She wasn't a mother, she was a buddy. Um, she, you know, in reading years later about how we would have very open talks about our sexual relationships with men, you know, like it was funny and it was perfectly appropriate to laugh about things like that with your mom when you're 14, 15, 17, eight, whatever. Um, she was this buddy that I thought, you know, was on my side and was an equal, um, and with that, it wasn't until many years later, you know, I'd had this anger towards this guy that abused me for years, but it, it was two different things. It was going to therapy later and having a therapist explain these horrible things this man did to me when I was 13, that the therapist said, your mother sexually abused you by putting you, hand delivering you to this man. She would drop me off at his home. You know, her 13, 14 year old daughter dropped me off at his house. And leave me there for days. 
and there were no cell phones back then. There was no, you know, she was out running around with a boyfriend. I couldn't get a hold of her if I tried to. Um, there just wasn't that kind of communication or technology then to do that. So, um, so when child services came, uh, what did you uh-huh. say to they them? They came to my school. When they came to your school, what did you say to them? I, I said nothing. They said, you know, we have this teacher that says that, you know, your mom's leaving you alone with an adult male that you're having a relationship with. Is that true? And I just said, it's not true. Mm-hmm. I just lied. Um, I just lied and said it wasn't true. But, and they, um, and they, know, know, and they never came... Go ahead. Sorry. Oh, no, so they never they never came uh, back after that. To they ask, never came to the home. Yeah. They never came to the home. They never followed through. Um, they came to my school. They took me out of class. It was a police officer, and what I'm guessing was a social worker. And I think there may have been um, the assistant principal or school principal or something like that from the school might have been there. Um, it, that's a little foggy. I remember just sobbing uncontrollably after that, thinking I was going to get taken away from my mom. Um, and a teacher that was a really good person in my life, you know, consoling me about that. But that's there. I don't remember any kind of follow through. I don't think they ever contacted my mother. Even. Um, I don't know. She may, they may have contacted her and she just didn't tell me. That's all I know is that they came to my school, they took me out of class, they talked to me, and that was all. And there was no follow-up. And at this time, do you still think that your mom is, uh, everything is, like, this is normal? and yes, that, that your mom And that your mom is a good mom to you still at this point? Yes. Okay. Absolutely. Um, yeah, she was, she's great. She's my best friend. She's awesome. This guy is sad to me, but I won't say anything because I'm scared of him because he's abusing me. Um, but, you know, she never once stepped in. She saw me crying. She saw bruises on me. She saw these things. She knew something was wrong, but she never once said anything. She would make it towards the end when it got really bad. Um, you know, it got to the point where he would pick me up from school. He wasn't working anymore because he was out of school at that point, but I was not allowed to take the bus to school anymore. He would pick me up and drop me off. Um, He would go through my purse. He would go through my books. He went through everything at the end of the day to make sure that I didn't have notes from other guys, that I wasn't, I I can remember one day having a notebook that I torn a corner out to like maybe, I don't know, maybe spit gum out into or something. Um, But he took that corner ripped out of a notebook to mean I'd written my number down for a guy. So I was sweat. I was a whore. I was, disgusting. I was just anything you could imagine. Um, so that was the relationship that I was living in. And to tell me that you don't know that your 13 or 14 year old daughter is living in this every single day for a couple of years is bullshit. You don't, you know, and I have definitely to some extent put some blame on my father too, because he wasn't around much. I saw him, I think maybe every other weekend if that, I think he knew something was wrong, and I think I've always said the big difference that's always been is that many years later, my dad sat me down and apologized to me and said, I should have done a better job, and I should have been there for you. And that, if my mother would just say that to me, it would make all the difference in the world. Um, But any kind of confrontation later comes to, 
well, wasn't I entitled to have some fun? I'd spent all those years with your dad. It was awful. Or you would have just run away with him anyway. So what was I going to do? It's just, there's no responsibility on her part at all. Um, you know, the, the two things that definitely made me realize that this, you know, later in life that the, you know, this guy was not the only thing wrong with this relationship, that this was really messed up with my mom was going to a, a therapist that said, you do understand that your mother is your abuser for, is at least 50% the abuser here and that she hand delivered you. She groomed you. She told you you were old enough to do this. She let you be sexually active with this adult male as a child. Um, and also as I got older and I had friends that had their own children and my best friend, when my best friend's daughter got to be about 13 years old and looking at this child, she's a baby, 13. And just thinking my friend would never put her in the car and take her to a man's house and leave her there for a week or more and not call to check up on her and not and just go out and party and tell her that she's a big girl and she's grown up and talk about their sexual exploits together. <laughs> um, so those were two of the really big lights that went off for me too later in that this is way more messed up than you thought it was. This isn't just this guy that was that. This is your mom that, that set it up and allowed it. And that was a really big part of it. Um, and I think, you know, all those years not understanding that she really had a hand in this. Um, over many years, probably into my 20s or so, she gradually, my mom has a lot of health issues, and she became a prescription pill addict. Um, still is. Um, so I know there is some fine lines there of what is narcissism and what is addiction. And it's difficult to separate those or, you know, look at those as one or the other. Um, she also has, she's a hoarder and that got really bad over the years. Um, and just, I, I always felt responsible for her. I always felt like her not getting well was my fault. Um, because she always would say, you know, you don't come over to the house. You don't help me clean. You don't help me, you know, this house is, is full of stuff because you don't help me with it. Um, and then my brother and I would make plans to come and help her clean the house. She would roadblock us or do her big dramatic, I'm sick act and not let us help or throw anything away. And then again, it's, it's always our fault. It's always our fault that there's something wrong. Um, as far as comp so, competitiveness goes, over the years, uh -huh. did that increase over time? Because that's a big um, sign of a narcissistic parent uh, with mothers and daughters um, when it comes to these situations that they're always, no matter what you're going to do, they always have to one-up you. Is that con continuously happening with you? Yeah, um, I think... You know, not not in such a like a demonstrative way as, as she could when I was a kid. Like I take dance class, she takes dance class, um, kind of thing. But it was um, 
you know, just nothing I ever did was like, right. It was ever good enough. If I had family dinner over at my house, you know, once I became a homeowner, it was a big deal for me to have my family over and make dinner and do the family thing. And she'd come over and say, well, I wouldn't have done it that way. You know, things like that. It's, it's a lot of just, just bringing you down a notch, um, you know, going out in my yard and she'll just start picking weeds. And it's like, well, can we just not hang out with the family? Well, I don't know how to hang out in this family when your yard is covered in weeds. I don't know why you'd even have one, anyone over like this. Um, it's just a lot of nothing's ever good enough for her. Nothing's ever right. No matter what you do, it's, it's not like, oh, that's great that you did this. It's, here's this one little part that, you, that wasn't right. It was more of that. It morphed into more of that thing rather than a, well, you did this. I'm going to do it better. It was everything you do. I'm going to bring it down a notch. So at what age did you start to have uh, self-esteem issues or maybe self, I like to call it self-everything, self-worth issues, uh, possibly, you know, uh, different forms of types of addiction, if that's an eating disorder or if that is uh, Mm -hmm. actual drug addiction or any kind of uh, shopping or anything like that? Did did things manifest in certain ways? Maybe a cutter. Uh, But did you have issues when you were younger? No, Lots of serial monogamous relationships where I've dated a lot of, I've dated a lot of addicts. And I think because of my mother's also drug addiction, I was always trying to you know, I always attracted these fixer-uppers um, that, you know, I was so in love with falling in love. And then the way you show that you love someone to me was by helping them and fixing them and doing for them. Um, I've never had any drug issues. I mean, I no drinking problems, no cutting, no nothing like that, self-esteem issues probably started in elementary school when my friends just stopped speaking to me. I got quiet. I got, you know, I pulled back. I didn't want to, I didn't want to be seen. I wanted to be small. Um, You know, self-esteem issues have been a major problem my whole life. I'm just never, ever, ever feeling like I'm good enough. Um, Never feeling like I add up. You know, if I walk around my house and it looks messy, I just, I'll just destroy myself with just negative self-talk. How could you let it get like this? How can it be this way? And I think part of that is self-esteem and part of it is too that extreme anxiety that walks, that comes from walking into your mother's house when she's a hoarder. <laughs> I'm able to sit down and be terrified you're going to turn into that. Um, I think my biggest fear which I, you know, understand is really common too, is am I a narcissist? Because I think a lot of the behaviors and coping mechanisms I learned growing up were learned from her that there were actions or ways of dealing with things that I adopted, but I can unlearn them too and and recognize them. Um, I think that was a big problem with being terrified I would be just like her. Um, and but it was mostly, it's just mostly manifested itself in self-esteem issues and just feeling like I have to, um, you know, I'm self-employed. Like, you know, I had to open my own business. I had to do everything myself. I would work two or three jobs at a time. I had to overachieve. I had to be 
somebody worthy. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. And does that manifest itself when it comes to relationship as overdoing things when it comes to uh, love or like an anxious attachment uh, to people? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, just never feeling like I was good enough. Um, really attracting people that were also very distant. Um, where I, I feel like unavailable people, unavailable people. And I'm in a very healthy relationship now. And I really have to fight the feeling of boredom in the relationship because if I don't have to constantly prove that I'm worthy, then what are we doing? I, it's been hard for me to just relax in a relationship that's with someone that just loves and appreciates me for who I am, where I am. It's a very new and foreign feeling. <laughs> So there's a, um, there's a lot of people who are listening who have this problem and have not been able to overcome this problem. So can you kind of, you know, because people that have grown up in these environments, they're used to chaos. They're used to something always happening, you know. So when they're with someone who is healthy, or at least, and I'm using air quotes while saying that, um, that we've all got some <laughs> there, there's nothing there's no drama and yeah. uh, without the drama things in our minds will say like oh this is boring uh, is. but you are in a relationship with someone and it's technically it's not boring this is just you know we're used to this one way and now this is an, this is another way, and this is the word we use. It's probably the wrong word to use, uh, but we all use Boring. it. <laughs> yes, because we all use it. Because uh, yeah. uh, you know, it's, it's probably insulting to the to the to the person who were. It, it is, <laughs> and I we've talked about that. I've told him because he didn't grow up like this. He's so he's how, how totally. Does he, how does he feel being described as, as boring? Well, when when you describe it in in the context. He understands it. Um, it was hard for me to describe first, and I think it, it was – I'm sure it felt hurtful to hear that. Um, you know, I, there was a lot of slumped shoulders, and I'm boring. <laughs> but it's not that he's – he's not boring. He's infinitely interesting. Um, I, I think it, it is just that – what would you rather be doing? Would you rather be fighting right now? Would you rather be – running yourself crazy, feeling like you're not good enough. I have to constantly remind myself that it's okay. It's okay to just be. And, and I, I've gotten better at bringing it up when it starts to feel, I don't know what else other use, word to use other than that, that, that poke on your side, like, Hey, you are kind of boring. You need to stir the pot. You need to poke the hornet's nest. I've caught myself wanting to pick fights or wanting to see slights where there aren't any um, and having to reel myself in a lot 
and not do that and keeping that appointment with my therapist to talk about this thing. And is it, you know, because I'm, I'm, I'm thinking here about this process right now and in a way is it a, a specific amount of abundant of energy it might be a negative energy have you learned have you had to try to learn how to take that energy and put it somewhere else where that can be fulfilled in a way if that makes sense yeah yes so how have, um, you, how have you done that i think that well it, it's interesting because <laughs> being that I don't know whether this is going to air or anything, but being, you know, kind of self-quarantined right now um, because of this virus and having to stay at home, um, we have definitely been fighting more, which I think everyone is in some way or another. And it is a fairly new, it's eight-month-old relationship, so it's it's pretty new. Um, But we're fighting more than ever because I don't have my outlet. I don't have, um, you know, going to the gym is a big one just being able to get my energy out to have a challenging thing to, to have a challenge to go meet for that hour and wearing myself out, trying to get to that challenge, trying to meet that challenge um, has been a huge help. I was never really, I mean, I was a dancer when I was younger and then I wasn't very active through my twenties and up to my mid thirties. Um, but in the past couple of years, um, going to the gym more has just been a huge help. Um, and not having that now, I think has been difficult for us. And I, I got uh, sidetracked back into the whole relationship part, but getting back to your mom, <laughs> getting back to your mom. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, so after you left, let's say the home, um, mm-hmm. and now you are an, uh, adult, even though you might be just 18. I don't know what, when you left your home, um, mm-hmm. as far as how the rela- 17, yeah. how did the, I uh-huh. guess the relationship from that point on change and as far as, uh, obligations and, and guilt, um, mm-hmm. you know, kind of from that point on and how was it affecting your life? Uh, as an adult. Okay. okay. Um, I think over the year, you know, we still had this like really good friends, really type relationship. Um, and it just, you know, the hoarding started, she was married to another man for most of my 20. I think they got married when I was uh, maybe 17 or so. And then they got divorced maybe seven or eight years ago. Um, so that was a whole other thing. She suddenly just left him right after he retired and pretty much took him for every penny that she could. Um, she, her, her prescription drug use started getting worse and worse. Um, her hoarding got worse and worse. Um, it was a lot of things like, it, a lot of it was related to the, the drug use and her, um, she has uh, chronic pain problems. She has like degenerative disc disease. She has chronic migraines, which I also have. Um, she, her, her sickness though seems to really taken on her identity. Um, her whole life re- revolves around going to these different pain clinics, getting pain medications, things like that. And it just started to, you know, my brothers and I 
really started to notice that it was affecting things like um, if we had a family gathering, hey, everybody come over 7 o'clock, we're going to have dinner. We'd get there at 7, she'd still be in her robe and not having done anything. It's like, well, that's okay, you could have canceled, but now we're all here. What do we do? Um, things like her having to go to the emergency room a lot because she, you know, we started realizing more and more that she was overusing her medication. She was going into detox. We'd have to go get her at the hospital um, because she would fake some sort of incident that would get her pain medication, and that just kept happening over and over. Um, and then just more and more of the like belittling type things that that kept happening of. Um, you never help me. You never come over. So I really took that on personally. Like, well, if I'm not helping, she's not getting better. It must be my fault. Um, and, and I think that even got into my profession of being a massage therapist. Of, you know, maybe I can help her this way. And um, just always wanting, to, you know, I just kind of became this person that's always the helper. I'm the person that people call when they need something. I'm the person that people call when they're in pain. I'm the person that people call when they need the friend therapist. Um, it's just kind of how that kept going on in my life. Um, I had one incident where I was getting ready to go to work, and she called me. I was getting ready to leave for work. I had clients scheduled, had to go. She called me and she gave me this big story about how she'd had an electrician coming to the house. So she was scared he was going to steal her medication. So she had hidden it, but now she couldn't find it. So she was in so much pain because she didn't have her pain medication, which was probably a story. She had probably just taken it all. Um, and she needed me to take her to the doctor. She needed me to take her to the hospital because she was, she was just in too much pain. She couldn't handle it. She needed to go to the hospital. And I said, well, you know, you need to, call your husband who's working right down the street or, you know, I have to go to work. I can't afford to not go to work. I can't just cancel my clients 10 minutes before. Like I get you're in pain, but the hospital's three blocks away. It was literally three blocks from our house. Um, so I'm getting ready to get my car to go to work and we're still on the phone. And she says, well, I guess it won't matter because I'll be dead by the time you talk to me next time because I'm going to shoot myself and hung up on me. So it's a lot of manipulation. Mm-hmm. Like that. Um, and that became like a big thing too. It's like, if you don't take me to the hospital, if you don't take me to get my drugs, I'll kill myself. So that started becoming a theme of manipulation. Um, and it was just anytime we would go to our house, it was all about, I was in, I, I read this, there's a book the book I read called, uh, I think it's called Will I Ever Be Good Enough? By Dr. Carol McBride. Yeah, specifically for daughters of narcissistic mothers. And one of the big things that was just like, holy shit, was these mothers that use pain as their identity and as a deflection thing. You go to her house and she'll be like, oh, I'm going to cook you guys dinner and everything's going to be, you know, we're going to have a family gathering or why don't, you know, just come over and hang out. And five minutes into us hanging there, she'll just be in the kitchen just... Oh. <laughs> you know, just this dramatic sighing and just this, it's so overly fake and dramatic and just, I'm in so much pain and, you know, she wants you to come in and be like, what's wrong, mom? What can I do? How can I help you? Um, and then if you don't do that, then she lashes out. Well, you never do anything to help me. And, you know, and that specific 
thing being in the book. I just never even heard of anybody else experiencing that. Um, it's just a lot of little things over the years that just all these, you know, I can give the example of, God, there's so many stories. Um, <laughs> there's so many. Um, I, it, I, I hesitate to use this one because I think it's more my brother's story in a way, but it was his wedding. Um, my brother's uh, fiance at the time, they were getting ready to get married. They were going to do it on a budget. It was going to be just a small little gathering. She found, she found a, a dress that she liked at Goodwill, which was really cool, but she wanted some alterations done to it. My mother said, well, give me the dress. I'll do it. She didn't tell us that she'd given my mother the dress to alter until a couple days before the wedding, and my brother and I just kind of looked at each other like, what have you done? It's not going to be done. She's like, oh, no, don't worry. Your mom said she would finish my dress. This poor woman on her wedding day, my brother, we're all sitting there waiting for the wedding to start. My mother's not there. My stepdad had brought the dress with him, still pinned together on her wedding day. Not done. She'd had months. My mom had had months to fix the dress. And if you couldn't fix the dress, just tell her to go take it to a tailor to, or alterations to get it done. Um, my poor stepdad shows up with this dress kind of pinned together. So my sister-in-law and her mother, and they're trying to fix this dress to get ready for this wedding. The wedding's ready to start. My mother still isn't there. My stepdad's there. Where's mom? I don't know. I brought the dress. I don't know where she's at. She wasn't. She was still in bed when I left. There's not her son's wedding. And, and he's her favorite too. <laughs> she, the bride is in her in the room, you know, standing behind the door, waiting to walk down the aisle. My mom walks in in a shorts and a tank top with a duffel bag, ready to do her whole, put her dress on and put her makeup on while we're all sitting there waiting for the wedding to start looking down the aisle. And she storms in crying and saying, I just, I think my marriage is over. I just, we got in a fight today and I just don't know what to do. The wedding's about to start. So then she got, we had, we had all had to sit there and wait for a good, at least 30, 40 minutes while she got dressed, holding up the wedding. So she could make her grand entrance down the aisle. So it's these kind of things that, that she's done to bring it's all about her it's all about bringing attention to herself was your brother's relationship with your mom at least decent before that and was that a big catalyst for a change no (laughs) yes and no uh their relationship has a you know he didn't live with her as a teenager so i think he escaped Uh, a lot of that he lived he stayed with my dad um he's her favorite he's the baby um, she still lashes out at him. I feel bad. He's really the only one that has a relationship with her now because she, um, and she relies on him heavily. He's also quite religious and for him, for him, um, he wants the experience of having his mother in his life and loving her for all her faults. And that's his own way of doing that. Um, and how, so, how is your relationship with your brother, both of your brothers, uh, uh, when it comes to your mom? And is it uh, are they healthy, or are you guys a fragmented no. group? Uh, my brothers, all three of us, all three of the siblings are very close, 
we we are very close. I can talk very frankly with either of my brothers about what's going on with her. Um, my younger brother does, you know, say I do want a relationship with her. I'm not, you know, that's not an option to me to cut off contact. My older brother has two small children, um, and because of her hoarding situation, it's not safe for the children to even go into her house. So they have limited contact. They have to like meet her in public somewhere if she bothers to show up at all. Um, like I said, my older brother did not live with us when I was a kid. Excuse me. Sorry. So much talking. So um, do, you, do you all, uh, he has a different dad than you. He does. Yeah. Um, but my father did not legally adopt him, but did claim him. Um, he has all the, you know, comes to all the same functions. My dad says, this is my son. This is, you know, my dad claims him for sure. Um, my older brother's father is deceased. Um, they had a horrible relationship. They were estranged for a couple of years. Again, that's kind of his story to tell. Um, I will say it wasn't until like recently that I really sat down with my brother and said, why didn't you live with us? And I think he felt very abandoned by my mother. Um, his father has been very abusive. And I think when my mom got remarried, she just kind of moved on and said, I have a new life now mm-hmm. and I'm going to have new kids. And she just, she didn't fight for him. And I think she, he was in a bad situation and she should have fought for him and she didn't. But again, that's kind of his story to tell. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to get too much into yeah. that. So, uh, eventually in your relationship with your mom, you're going through mm-hmm. all of this stuff, but I guess there's one point where you say, hold on one second, I don't know if you read something or you were at the therapist and the therapist says, your mom is a narcissist. Here's this stuff to read. Uh, was was there an event like that? And then what happened to you after that? Like, did your brain just pop at that point? Kind of. Um, I, I, it started really coming up more and more. Like I would, I would just have these horrendous bouts of depression, um, feeling like I just wasn't good enough feeling like I just couldn't, I just, I was never going to be good enough. Um, you know, all these problems with my mom being sick all the time, having drug problems and feeling somehow responsible for that. I decided that, you know, I'd been given antidepressants off and on for years. They don't work well with me. I just did not find any, um, help from that. So I decided to start going to therapy and, when um, when I started going to therapy and had that therapist that said to me, you know, your mother was sexually abusing you and being abusive to you because of her allowing this relation, this inappropriate relationship with you when you were younger, that was a huge. That was huge. You know, I remember even arguing with her and being like, "No, my mom's not abusive," and not believing her. And she said, "No." you were a 13 year old child and your mother was allowing you to have a sexual and abusive relationship with an adult man. Tell me that's okay. Tell me that that was an okay thing to do. And I'm like, yeah, but I was a different, I was different. I was older and I I was older for my age and I, I argued with her and it just, it was just like everything just fell apart for a couple of, 
really years of therapy of just like, it just, it had never occurred to me that she was abusive to me. I thought she was my best friend and there was something wrong with me because she was sick because I wasn't doing enough or, you know, we had to fix this, this addiction or whatever was going on with her. Um, she didn't want to be fixed. She wanted to keep abusing drugs. She wanted to keep abusing us. And that was kind of when it started, um, was just having someone have to tell me. And then I had a, my second therapist that I had when things started getting really bad and I started recognizing these things and all these things started coming up, a, a big light went off when she said, you know, you don't, you're not obligated to have a relationship with this person just because she's your mother. It never occurred to me. It had never occurred to me that I didn't have to have a relationship with my mother. I thought it was my job and my duty. That's what you do. She's your mother. You have to have a relationship with your mother. <laughs> And if there's something wrong with it, you have to fix it. Um, but it wasn't for many years later until um, I did go no contact. That was two, two, maybe three years ago. Um, so it was a lot of, you know, picking up books and reading things and kind of distancing myself. I think it was a, a gradual distancing over the years. Um, I even went to go live at a yoga retreat center in Tennessee for two years. <laughs> For a while to kind of help find myself again, um, so, and to so, live in community that felt like family. So, did you have at that point um, an identity crisis at all? Mm, I don't know that I ever really had an identity crisis. Like I said about being younger, I wasn't really. I don't. I think my 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 parents were more like neglectful rather than you know, lots of rules of telling me I had to do things. Um, I think it was a, a lot of mourning for my childhood and being able to come to terms with my past and what it really meant and how it had formed me and how it had formed my relationships and taking responsibility as an adult. Like these aren't your circumstances anymore. And it's up to you to decide how you proceed from this moment forward. Um, but I don't think I ever had really an identity. I was always a weirdo. <laughs> I, was always <laughs> I was always the black sheep in the family. I was always the, yeah, I'm going to go be a massage therapist and I'm going to go live in a retreat center in Tennessee. And you know, the family's like, yeah, that adds up. She's strange. Um, I was always a little different. Um, but I think it was just a, a process of learning how to love myself um, and living at that retreat center, I lived it, it was living in community. It was a small staff of us living in community. Like get up every morning. We all cook breakfast together and we all wash the dishes together and we all do, it was like living in a family and learning things like I had never heard of things like nonviolent communication and owning what your own feeling and not having to blame anymore. What, you know, I spent a lot of time being really angry. Well, I'm this way because of her. Okay, well, what do you want to do about it now? So, How do you want to so move at, forward at, with that? At this facility, you learn things like nonviolent communication? Yes. Like, Not like I took the actual courses or anything, but they just live it. Okay. That's just who they are but, and how they are but did they? But did they explain that that's what the conversation oh, yeah. was? Okay, that's, mm -hmm. in, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, and 
you know, it was a lot of, you know, I was there to, you know, I was a housekeeper and I, I'm a massage therapist and that's what I did with the clients there. And, um, it was just a lot of how, this is how families function. You know, if something is wrong, you're allowed to speak your truth and every, you know, any kind of conversation, there was always, you know, it was like a passing of the talking stick. You have a voice. You're allowed to say if something is hurting you or if something's bothering you. You don't have to bottle it up. We can just talk about it and get it over with. Um, there was a lot of learning about communication and responsibility for your own feelings and your own actions and um, how to have boundaries. I had I'd never heard of boundaries before. <laughs> I didn't know what that was. You're allowed to have boundaries, but she's your mother. She can do whatever she wants. Um. So that was a big, that was a big learning experience of just kind of how to be an adult. I think my, my teaching of how to communicate and how to grow up and how to be a person stopped very young. It stopped around that 12, 13, 14 year old age. And I had a lot of catching up to do in some respects. I knew how to pay bills and work a job, but how to have personal relationships and communication was something I had to learn later. So how did you find that place? Um, just through my own yoga, you know, I had done yoga practice and had done a massage therapist and I went there as a student, um, and kept going back year after year. Cause I really, um, I just really found something there that I'd never found in the outside world. Um, I came there as a student maybe once a year for about, you know, three to five days. And I w- would always, I was there one day and I just, them. I said, can I come here and live here and work for a season? And they just said, yeah, okay, you can do that. So, so, after, so after you uh, left there and mm-hmm. you, different you're different, you're a different person <laughs> as yeah. far as relationships and how things were going from uh, that point on, was there a lot of trial and error of learning everything you used yeah. and how did that go? Yeah. Yeah. Lots of build relationships. Um, I don't know. I, you know, I had some, I think I was, I was definitely learning. I was having better, um, romantic relationships. Um, you know, just because they didn't last doesn't mean they were a failure. Um, but I think they got better. You know, I've had two or three relationships since leaving there into, I left in 2012. Um, I've gotten better and better at it. And, you know, I can't, they, I, I was definitely moving through them with a lot more purpose and intention than I'd ever had before and communication skills and ownership that I'd never had before. And that, that just, it just felt really freeing to have you know, boundaries and ownership over my own experiences and relationships. And definitely once I moved back, I had less and less contact with my mother it was it was just dwindling down less and less and less as she just became worse and more difficult to hang out with and be around. Um, so did you ever have a then, mo- moment where you said officially, like, I'm not talking to you anymore, or did it just kind of slowly go away? So the big kind of final um, incident in our relationship was she kept kind of... Um, just berating me a lot about being single and how I wasn't married and, you know, I don't know what's wrong with you and I don't know why you, you know, meanwhile she's single and living alone and hoarding and 
wear her bathrobe all day. But for some reason, she kept fixating on me being single and how horrible it was and um, how I needed a man in my life. And she was living in this apartment. And she had started talking to this neighbor of hers that lived in a house across the street. And he was probably closer to her age. And she kept, she calls me one day and says, I've got this guy I'd really like for you to meet. He's my neighbor. He's a widower. He's so nice. You know, and then she told me that he was kind of her age. And I was like, no, I'm not, I'm not interested. I don't want to date right now. I'm not into it. She got very angry with me and said, you know, well, I just don't understand. He's a perfectly nice man and you need a good man in your life. I don't understand why you won't meet him. I'm setting this up for you. You're ungrateful. She got angry. Um, like I mentioned before, I'm a massage therapist. Um, I do most of my, most of my booking when clients go to make an appointment with me, they book online. Uh, most of my clients are referrals from other clients. I don't advertise. So it, um, usually if I get a new client, I just figure someone else sent them. So I was at work. I happened to be in the office alone that day, which really set me off. Um, and this new client showed up. It was a man. I said, oh, nice to meet you. Here's your paperwork. Go ahead and fill this out. We'll talk a little bit. He fills out his paperwork. I look at it, referred by my mother. Look at his address. He lives right across the street from her. She sent this man to my office. So I would have to touch him for an hour. Because I'm a professional, I did my job. He was obviously very nervous. It was so weird. Um, it, I just, I didn't know what to do. I kind of, I kind of froze, you know, because I feel like in a way this guy was kind of as ignorant about what was really going on as I was. I don't know what she told him. So I did the hour. I did my job. He was nice. We chatted a little bit. Have a nice day. See you later. And after it was over, I, I was just shaking. I just, I couldn't believe she had sent this man to my place of business. Not just like I work retail and like, hey, just chatter up over the counter. I have to touch this man for a full hour. A few minutes later, my phone rings and it's my mother. And I'm just shaking. I'm so upset. And she's like, so what did you think? Isn't he nice? And I'm just like, I, I, I don't even know what to say to you. I told you I'm not interested, and you sent this man to my business in a romantic manner, especially with what I do for a living. Enough people don't take my job seriously. How could you do that to me? And she just says, wow, I literally just delivered you a good man to your door, and you can't be thankful. I can't believe you. And she hung up on me. And so I, you know, I just kind of quit talking to her for a while and I just, I couldn't believe it. You know, I told my brother about my younger brother about it. And he's like, wow, that's, that's really crazy. I can't believe she did that. Yeah. That sounds about right. She's, she's pretty nuts. Um, a couple months later, my brother says, you know, mom needs help with us. She's ready to get some of this hoarding mess out of the way. We really need to do something. Her apartment people are on her about it. Will you help me? Yes, I'll help you. But don't make me talk to her. 
he said, okay, that's fine. I'll be there. I'll, I'll buffer. Please help me. So I went there to help my brother and we weren't there for very long. And she's a smoker. She opens up her window. She's not supposed to smoke in her apartment. She opens up her window and she lights up a cigarette. She turns around and she says, so I guess you haven't called my neighbor back then, have you? I know what you did. I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. What neighbor? I told you this was off the table. Not interested. I don't want to talk to you about this. What the hell? And she's like, you know, I just don't understand you. I I hand delivered a good man to you and you just can't, you just couldn't talk to him. You just couldn't do it. And I, and I know, I know about those pictures you sent him to. I feel like I'm taking crazy pills. Um, they're like, what, what are you talking about? What the fuck? talking about and she explained some pictures he had on his telephone that he had showed her and the two that she described were just some cute pictures I had taken of myself and I have had them on my Instagram account and obviously this guy had looked me up on Instagram and had either screenshotted or my mom doesn't understand how Instagram works or whatever but she's like I know you sent him pictures of yourself to tease him I know how you are I know what you're like. And me and my brother are looking at each other like, what the fuck is happening? What's happening right now? And she says, I think you need to come apologize to him. And I'm like, I'm not going to talk to this crazy person. I don't know. I, I am not interested. This person does not exist to me. I'm not interested. I don't know what you're talking about. He obviously took those pictures from my social media, which I should have made private, which I will now do. She's like, no, I know what you did. I know you sent them to him. And I'm like, I am your daughter. This is your neighbor. I'm asking you to believe me. I am the person you gave birth to. I am, you don't, you barely even know this guy. Stop talking about him. I didn't do this. And she's like, you can say whatever you want. I know how you are. I know what you did. And my brother just looks at me and he's like, I think you should just go home. Just, just leave. This isn't going to be good. And so I left. And I called my brother later and said, I, I just don't think I can talk to this person again. I, I can't do this. This is crazy. I can't, I can't have her belittle me telling me I'm worthless without this man that I don't even know. I can't have her say, like, I can't do this anymore. And I kind of decided right then and there, I was just going to, I, I can't, I can't, I'm done. And then my brother calls me and he says, you know, this is a couple months later even. And he says, you, I need your help. I am working overtime. I can't do this. Mom is really sick. She's been to the ER twice, three times, whatever. She's really, really sick. Nobody knows what's wrong. I need you to go over there and help her. Um, so my mom, I did go over there, and for once in her life, she really was. She was very, very sick. Um, she ended up in isolation in the hospital later on. She was sick, but she had cried wolf so many times at the hospital. Nobody believed her. Um, I go to her house. She's got this like major to not make a graphic. She's got a major GI issue that's left a lot of messes in her bed and all over the house. So suddenly now it's my, my literally my job to clean her shit. And I'm just trying to get it done and get it cleaned up. So my brother can take her to the doctor the next morning. And I remember sitting there and trying to clean all the cleaning carpet, trying to clean her bed. It's hoarded so badly. I can't take the sheets off because she sleeps in one corner of the bed. 
And I'm just like, I'm not here to talk to you. I'm not here to socialize. I'm just here to make sure that you're taken care of, that we get you to the doctor, that you're okay. And she does it again. She's like, well, not that, I mean, that's fine. You can help me, but I really think you need to go over and apologize to my neighbor. She brings it up again. She does it again. And that was the and that was the moment. It just snapped. And I was like, I'm done. I'm never, I, I just unleashed. And I said, I'm so sick of you putting men in front of me. My whole life, all you've ever done is put men first. You put some stupid boyfriend in front of me. You you gave me to him while you could run around with a man. You just all these things that you've done over the years. And of course, she comes into this. Well, I can't believe you're bringing that stuff up from your childhood. You know, you had a great childhood. I was entitled to go have some fun. I had raised my kids. I did my job. You know, it's just blaming me and then. She, um, you know, and I just, I just stopped and I was like, you know what? It doesn't matter. She's not going to change. She can't change. You've read enough about this. You know, she's not capable. She's not capable of taking responsibility. And she just keeps going on and on yelling at me. And I just finally, I just, you know, you know what? I'm done. I'm done with this relationship. I'm done with you treating me like shit. And I said, fuck you. I wish I hadn't done that. And I slammed the door and I left and I have not talked to her since then. And that was three years ago? About three years three ago. Three years ago? Yeah. And yeah. did you uh, have a lot of guilt at the beginning? Yeah. And has that subsided? The first thing I felt was I was like euphoric. I was like, holy shit, I'd never have to talk to her again. This is the best thing I've ever done my whole life. I feel so done. I'm free. I am freeing myself right now. I'm done. This is great. Um, but anyone that's ever goes, gone no contact probably understands that it's not that simple. Um, there, there are some people, my brothers both say they understand they they support me and, and even have gone as far as to say they support me in my decision. Um, have not treated me badly or anything. They they get it. Um, surprisingly, it's been my dad that doesn't get it. He's like, I know she's kind of crazy, but it's your mom. Come on, what are you going to do? Just like not see her again till her funeral? It was kind of the plan. Um, but then, you know, second guessing my, even like just this conversation with you today, you know, second guessing myself. Is it really that bad? Yes. Is it, is it really that bad? I'm listening to your story. Yeah, should it I, is. <laughs> should I even tell this? Like, is it important? Is it, you know, I, I have that constant voice of her saying, you're just, you're just being entitled. There's nothing wrong. Like it was all you. It was, your life wasn't that bad. You turned out fine. You were grown up. You're a survivor. You did it. You're, there's nothing wrong with you. Why are you, why are you focusing on this? Why are why won't you just make up with her and forgive her? And I have empathy for her. I'm really glad I'm me and not her. I couldn't imagine what it's like to live in that mind in that body. I don't know how to forgive her. I don't really know what that means. 
really. Um, I've meditated on the word forgiveness a lot, and I, I, I don't get it. I don't know how that feels or how to make that a thing. Um, you know, she came from a pretty bad background. Both of her parents are pretty hardcore alcoholics. Her mother died of heart disease. Her father died of liver cirrhosis and emphysema. Um, to the best of my knowledge, I think she was sexually abused as a child. Um, I know she started getting migraines very young. I think that was the only way she could get any control to make the world stop around her in a way. Um, but it, it's, it's a back and forth. It's a, you know, like if it were a normal non-quarantine world, today is her birthday and my brother and I would be taking her to the Olive Garden, her favorite restaurant where she would order everything on the menu and get two more meals for takeout because we're paying for it. So <laughs> that's not my day today. Um, but you, you answered, you know, your question before, which was, um, this person's never going to change. No. And the only thing that can, the only thing that can change is you and how you Mm -hmm. deal with this person or decide to not deal with this person because that person is only done hurtful things to you your whole life. And you deserve to not live in that anymore. And you, you deserve that. I think that, I think that, I think that's the hardest part is just that there will never be an apology. There will never, she'll never have that moment where she's like, Oh my God, I'm so sorry. I was wrong. Never going to happen. I'm not going to get that. Yeah, I had an episode of, of our other podcast called uh, our Narcissist Apocalypse Q&A podcast. And we had a therapist on, uh, Debbie Tudor, who actually learned uh, a lot from uh, Dr. Carol McBride herself. She took her, her program. And, you know, I asked the question on that show for someone about their issue when their mom passed away because they felt that they had dealt with everything and when their mom passed away they were oh, I'm terrified of that day they were they were upset and their question was like how come they were upset because they didn't they you know they didn't have a relationship with their mom they thought they thought they dealt with everything and mm-hmm. and their the response she gave and the answer to that question was that you're not mourning your mom's death you're really mourning that you know while your mom was alive, you always felt that maybe your mom might change, even though you know they wouldn't, she wouldn't have changed. But right. when there's just the finality when the, your mom passes away, the finality of you never got that apology. You never yeah. got that. And you're mourning, you're, you'll, you'll mourn that. You're, you're going to be mourning. Well, I mourn, I, I mourn, not getting the apology and I mourn her just being so miserable, her decision to stay so miserable. I guess it's not a decision, but, but also mourning the love she, that you, you never received. Yeah. Yeah. And, and well, and just, again, it's kind of that empathy to thing too. I feel so bad for her. She's a miserable person. And, 
she'll never, she'll never, you know, she literally wakes up. She barely ever gets dressed. She shuffles around her or climbs over her piles of crap in her hoarder apartment. And nobody really wants to visit her and nobody likes her. And she eats pills and that's her day. I, and that, I, I know someone, I know someone who is probably of your mom's age. Um, mm-hmm. I won't name names, but uh, they're not related to me. Uh, they don't have a drug problem, but you know they are someone who, you know, is miserable, just a miserable person, and mm-hmm. wants to make no matter what situation always about them and make everything miserable. Um, yeah, and that person um, is extremely low contact with that person, with that parent. Uh And for many years, um, they were no contact completely, but for the sake of grandchildren, it has gone extremely low contact and really leaves it up to the grandchildren or their children uh, what Uh kind of contact they want with them as they've gotten older. But it's moving probably towards eventually no contact because the grandchildren, the, their, well, the children um, have really figured out this person and just don't like being around them at all. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my, my older brother, his kids are to her three, like two and four. And she's probably only seen them a handful of times. And, you know, even the oldest one um, had his birthday recently and my brother just sent me a picture he had taken of the birthday card my mom sent in the mail and she addressed it to um it said to michael that's not his name there's nobody in the house named that she doesn't even know her grandchild's name it's yeah she you know and they still have contact with her but i don't i don't know for how long Mm -hmm. they will you know she's got a four-year-old grandson and she, she can't even remember his name. So as far as you right now in therapy, Mm -hmm. so I guess you're working in therapy with this situation still in the sense of, um, you know, your own wavering back and forth of guilt Mm -hmm. of guilt. Yes. It kind of, it ebbs and flows. I'll be great, you know, and I, I kind of go to therapy on an as needed basis right now, A, because it's so expensive. Um, I've gone to therapists that charge by, you know, my income, but right now, um, the one that I found, the one that works is she's really expensive, but I get so much more out of it that it's worth it. Um, I kind of just go see her on an as needed basis. And I feel like even just that one hour can set me right for a couple of months. I've done some EMDR therapy, I think to help with a lot of the the trauma um, from the ex-boyfriend. And that's that's been really helpful. I feel like that was just a huge weight that just, I felt like I just processed and it was just gone. It just, that's the whole point of the EMDR, I guess. Mm but it's just a, you know, when I, it sneaks up on you. Um, it, I'll just start feeling really depressed and down on myself. And I have to really, you know, once I'm in it, I kind of have to stop and say, okay, what do you really 
feeling here? What is this really about? And, you know, more often than not, it can be related to, you know, like, oh, today is her birthday. You know, will I get a crap letter in the mail saying what a horrible daughter I am because I didn't celebrate it? Um, there is a lot of guilt that comes up, but it gets it gets fewer and further between. Um, I think I'm more just focusing now on how to have a um, how to have a happy and successful romantic relationship too, and not feel that feeling like there's something missing because it's not because it is healthy. Mm-hmm. So, um, so before, uh, so before we end the show, is there stuff that I haven't kind of gone over and, uh, mm. and do you have any words of wisdom as well for everyone who's kind of going through or has been going through the same thing that you did and has not, uh, processed anything? Oh gosh, who am I? I'm no authority. Um, <laughs> I think the no contact thing is probably one of the things I needed the most help with. Um, it's hard to know who to share that with, that you, that you don't talk to your mother. Um, when you do find those people, know that they, too, are being cautious about talking about it. But try to make it an open invitation that you can, you know, kind of have that bonding over it. Um, I've met a couple friends that I've... Um, that are no, no contact with a parent and I've gotten a little better, not pushing them to open up, but giving them the space to open up about it. And there, I, I haven't met a lot of people, but it's, it's, it's not nice to know that they're out there, but it's, it's, it's validating. Um, but it's, I mean, someone is just hurting you constantly every single time you ever interact with them and you really it's only your decision to make to go no contact and that's what I had to realize I did I couldn't wait for permission um, from the rest of my family or my friends or my community I just I had to make that decision for myself I had to get myself permission well, I want to thank you for being on the show. I know um, a lot of this was tough to uh, yeah. just to, to discuss today and could have been re-traumatizing possibly, and, and you still came on uh, to share your story to help other people, and I really enjoyed talking to you today. Um, thank you. I thought, uh, I think you're gonna, this episode is going to help a lot of people, so I really want to thank so. you from the bottom of my heart. Um, for being here today and uh, sharing your story, sharing your truth. And, um, you know, I'm sending you big virtual hugs and uh, thank you. Um, thank for, you. From me and everyone who is listening. Hi, everyone. You thought the show was over, but Ashley wanted to add one more thing. So, again, the floor is now yours. Okay. Um, it's just one of those um, things that's just kind of important to feeling, I guess, maybe even to me that, yes, this is narcissism. Um, my, my, my grandmother passed away um, about, yeah, I guess it was about no, four years ago. She passed away four years ago. This is my father's mother. Um, my mom, after their divorce, still kept a relationship with her in-laws, my grandparents, and um, 
maybe even a bit inappropriately so, but you know, I don't know. That's, that's, that's between them. But, um, when my grandmother passed away, um, she had had Alzheimer's, she passed away at 91. She had a great full life. Um, we all got together, my dad, my grandfather, my brother, stepmom, um, you know, and made the funeral arrangements. We all got together the night that she died and we sat down and wrote her obituary together. And it was a really beautiful process and it was a really good, um, I'd never taken part in arrangements after a death before. And it was really good to feel included in that. Um, at the funeral, um, my, so of course my mom came to the funeral, which is expected. It's understandable. Um, we were, it was freezing. It was, I think it was February. It was freezing. There's snow. We're standing at the gravesite. Final words have been said. People are walking back out to their cars. My mom burst into a full-blown wail. <laughs> crying. It's a little much. Nobody else is doing this. Most of the people walk back to their cars. I'm standing next to her. And I kind of put my arm around her awkwardly. And I'm like, I understand. You know, it's, I'm sorry. I know this is really hard for you. And I said, you know, I know that you loved her too. And I know that, you know, your, your sadness is valid. I said something like that, something validating. And she says, that's not why I'm crying. <laughs> I'm like, okay, what's going on? Why are you crying? I can't believe none of you thought to put my name in her obituary. So that's my story. <laughs> that was kind of the, that was That one. sums it all that's, up right that's, there. That's, that's my mother. That's my mom. Real proud. So I felt like that was important to add in. And she also put food from her, the, the church ladies put together in her purse to take home for later. So, yeah. Well, thank you for that last story. That was my add-on. <laughs> so, again, thank you for being on the show. And uh, for the second time, or if, depending on when I, how I edit this, and thank you okay. for showing up here today, everyone. I'm rambling. I hope everyone has a good night. <laughs>